create actionable and and make decisions you know actionable things that they could do from that information was very hard and very time consuming and we made that real time we made it really accessible and we were one of the very very first if not the first to do real time natural language processing and real time data visualization and analytics on top of a social stream that could be as aggressive as like a thousand tweets per second and and then you know from that was at the beginning welcome to innovation and leadership where i interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers elite special operations soldiers startup ceos who sold their companies for billions of dollars pro athletes hollywood filmmakers really as many different kinds of experts as i can The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Dave Olden, my good friend, and I are laughing right now because we just recorded the last 10 minutes, but I wasn't recording. Everything great I said, I will forget and we'll right? say again. So. Okay, people, I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know how this episode's <laughs> going to go now. So You asked some really good questions, too, so I don't know. Can we, can we repeat that? Yes, we can. We can totally repeat those. So my good friend, Dave Oldham, he's built six companies, had some smaller exits and, and, and what I think is a pretty great exit and somebody that I look up to and I'm glad you made time to be on the show today. So let's let's back up a little bit. Give us just a quick background on the, the businesses you've built previous to uh, coming over here to Big Leap to be the president. Yeah, so I've started six companies, had three successes. So I'm, I'm kind of, you know, shoot, batting 50%, which is okay, I guess. Some guys, everything they touch turns to gold and others, uh, you know, maybe keep trying. So I feel blessed that I've had multiple successes, but none of them have been massive. Like you said, two were relatively small and one was kind of medium size, not cool enough to be part of the cool kids here in Utah because there's been so many fantastic entrepreneurs and and people have gotten like massive exits. I aspire to someday have enough money to buy like the Utah Jazz, but you know, never got even close to that. So but I've enjoyed the entrepreneurial thing, learned at least as much from my failures as from my successes. And with multiple of both, have been able to kind of formulate like what I think is my truth as far as entrepreneurship goes. If you just have one success, maybe you don't know what you don't know. You know, it could have been pure luck, good timing or whatever. With one failure, you don't know like if it was, again, like bad timing or whatever. With multiple, you're kind of, you start to see the patterns of like, okay, I could have done those things better. And with multiple successes, you're like, okay, those are the things that seem to consistently work. And so that's helped me a ton kind of arrive at, you know, what my entrepreneurial experience has been. Well, I'm going to pay you the same compliment in repeat here, which is, (laughs) I think about the years we've hung out, CEO clubs, talking with our friend Jay Davis, just stuff. And I find that you have a unique mix of this like humility, you don't show up saying, look at me, look at me. But then you have this like quiet confidence underneath of like real ambition to like get out and get stuff taken care of. And that's not a mix I see a lot. I see, you know, excesses one direction or the other. And for me, I think it's one of the things that I I would like to emulate more of like, get out there and try and take over the world, but not needing to announce it all the time or something. Yeah, well, I said it when we weren't recording, so I'll say it again. It's it's that's probably the nicest thing anyone could ever say to me, the kindest compliment anyone could pay to me with respect to entrepreneurship because I certainly aspire to be that. I the analogy is like a duck on the lake 
smooth and calm on the surface, but paddling like hell underneath, right? And you asked a great question earlier about where does that come from? And I'm just thinking about it now. I've never really thought about it before, but it may be a mix of my parents. So I'll give a shout out to my parents and compliment them. My dad is a successful entrepreneur, but is also extremely introverted, very calm, very quiet, kind of the, maybe to use a local analogy, like the Lavelle Edwards of, you know, just doesn't show a lot of emotions, pretty, pretty poker face all the time. But my mom's the big cheerleader, very passionate, very energetic. And so maybe, maybe that upbringing is kind of my personality is a mix of those two. And I don't know how to describe myself, actually, because in certain situations, I'm really introverted and quiet. And in other in other situations, I'm very outgoing and confident, like I, I don't like the fanfare and the King Kong, you know, pounding your chest and, and getting up in everybody's face. But at the same time, I'm extremely confident in public speaking situations. I'm happy to be the face of a product or the face of a company and talk about it. I'm very vocal and very talkative about the things I'm passionate about. But yeah, also not the typical, you know, get out there and like crazy advertise or, you know, at least I try not to be like over the top like that. And, you know, I I appreciate the compliment as far as the humility is concerned, but I definitely especially in light of some of the fantastic entrepreneurs in Utah, male and female, and some of the amazing outcomes, I I definitely feel small fish. Like I haven't really accomplished that much compared to many of the crazy successful entrepreneurs here, just even in our own state of Utah, you know? So it's easy to be humble (laughs) from my perspective. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I still admire it because I know people with less millions than you have that are pretty sure it's like, you know, between them and Elon Musk for the for, for <laughs> the wealthiest person in the world. You know, so I'm like the hundredth on the Utah <laughs> list, and then if you expand that to like nationwide, it's got to be like I'm not even in the one percent. So my next question is: I don't know hardly anything about what you guys are doing here, but I know you, and I know about all our conversations with our friend Jay Davis, and I know like what kind of potential it takes to get you interested because. You don't have to do stuff. So I want to know what you guys are doing here. Why, why are you here? <laughs> that is a fantastic question. And my wife asked me the same thing, like, what? You want a job? You know, you want to go back to work? Why? First and foremost, it's, it was the people. The founder, Brian Phelps, and his executive team, Dan Posner, Eric Jackson, the, the people that I met as I started consulting with them are like cream of the crop, coolest people I've met. And I've just loved being around them, spending time with them. And so the biggest part of the decision was, you know, if I don't have to, and I can be really picky about who I spend my time with, they've got to be pretty awesome people. And so that checked that box. And then, you know, this is a marketing agency, which has been growing at a good pace, but it's kind of one of a thousand agencies. So the question is like, well, why would that be interesting? And when we sat down at our last annual offsite and started putting together a plan about potential growth, I brought them some interesting ideas that are probably atypical for an agency to think about. And they kind of got interested in some of those ideas. And so we're working on some stuff that I can't really talk about at the moment, but we hope to roll out in the next few years that could push the agency in a really exciting direction and 
are, are fairly, I would say, audacious. And that's what gets me excited. And so their willingness to push themselves outside of their comfort zone and maybe take a little bit of risk compared to what they've been doing in the past and, you know, be excited about some of the potential things that we're pursuing was enough for me to be interested and kind of exciting. So it's the luxury of pursuing some startup y kind of ideas with the ground cover of profitability and a hundred fantastic employees that are, you know, we have a fantastic culture. So there's a lot of these core building blocks that you don't have to start from scratch that are, I think, optimal to launch some new exciting things on top of. So let's, I'm interested as you think about inventing the future. Okay. Um, there are so many people that are fascinated with the tech space and the, the ability for duplication and scale there. Can you talk about, you know, your, your, as you call it, your medium exit, <laughs> your biggest exit so far, what you think that you guys got figured out there that you were able to scale the way you did? In that particular scenario, we, it had a lot to do with timing. The technology that we developed that I had just, I mean, part fortune, part luck, part relationships to have a core technical founding team that were, I would consider off the charts geniuses that were able to kind of bring to life any of the crazy ideas that we, you know, dreamt up together. And the timing of that was really interesting where social media had, had reached a point where it was not just a fad, not just an interesting thing or curious thing that teenagers were doing, but had become part of the mainstream. Businesses were really trying to figure out like how to participate, how to listen, how to absorb all the information and how to make decisions based on that. And prior to us coming along with the technology that we developed, they were, you know, printing stuff out, highlighting stuff on paper, you know, just really manual, really tedious ways to try and figure out a, what was going on in the areas of social media that they were interested in and then trying to create actionable and, and make decisions, you know, actionable things that they could do from that information was very hard and very time consuming. And we made that real time. We made it really accessible. And we were one of the very, very first, if not the first to do real time natural language processing and real time data visualization and analytics on top of a social stream that could be as aggressive as like a thousand tweets per second. And, and then, you know, from that was at the beginning, like, and then got to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of tweets per second. And, and I, I mentioned that just because that was kind of like the rate at which you have to absorb the information and then be able to act on it. And so the, the technical challenges were great or immense and the team that I had to to address those challenges was phenomenal. And it was just kind of this lucky mix of good timing, uh, really important and critical customer demand. And we were one of the first, so there wasn't a lot of other options. And being able to capitalize on all that was pretty lucky. Um, can you tell people the name of the company and what your like, intro or your like, elevator pitch would have been if you were bumping into a potential client at some event? Or like, how did you... How did you get the conversation started? Man, that evolved. The elevator pitch evolved quite a bit over time, but where we kind of ended up was, and the, the company's name was Nuvi, and where we ended up was 
understanding in real time or, you know, in a second, exactly what everybody is saying about you on social media and being able to take action on that. And for the bigger, especially the the biggest brands that we worked with, that was, you know, game changing for them where if somebody was, if there was a trend that was happening or if, if somebody was saying something negative, them instantly being able to a determine whether it was a blip or if it was actually a trend, whether that person that was saying something was influential and what the impact, like the ripple effect of their message was, or if it was, you know, just a flash in the pan and then being able to isolate those and immediately respond to those, you know, could be worth millions of dollars to especially the biggest brands. And then on the hyper local level, very small brands, just even understanding at all what people were tweeting about their ice cream shop or their restaurant or their auto body shop or whatever, or, you know, not just tweeting, but, you know, Facebook, Instagram, we kind of covered all the social channels, what, what people were saying. And again, what the trends were and what the important patterns were rather than, you know, you don't want to make a knee jerk reaction to some one crazy person that, you know, is way off base. But if you see a consistent message, we translated that and showed them what was consistent and then helped them, you know, make decisions based on that. So who, who are like some of the biggest clients you're allowed to talk about? I think now, because it's been so long, I can talk about Gatorade was our first meaningful, big client. And they gave us a lot of really free, awesome publicity. You know, they spread the word about us. And so, you know, one of the things I learned was if you can get a couple of, big customers and and by big i mean depending on your market a marquee client can be different sizes but a client that has influence and that other companies like them would kind of look up to or say oh if it's good enough for them so we lucked out with you know Gatorade being a, a very recognizable brand that really loved what we did they built a I would call it like a NASA style mission control center in their headquarters. And then they even hosted tours and, you know, they brought other big brands and like major league baseball and NFL and other people went in and saw what they were doing and then called us. And so that opened a lot of doors for us. So, you know, shout out and, and thank you, you know, a lot of gratitude to them for being our first kind of big client. And then yeah, major league baseball as a whole, and then some individual major league teams and some of the biggest, you know, consumer brands like Nike and others, you know, over time used us. And so we had a, we had a fairly impressive list of marquee brands. And a lot of that was attributed to, you know, get once Gatorade said, Hey, they've, it's got our stamp of approval. It was pretty easy to get other ones on board. So I have this theory that like business is mostly like sales stuffed with whatever you do. Yeah. Okay. So, when it comes to Gatorade, Nike, Major League Baseball, what's one of your favorite sales philosophies or what's done well for you over the years? Oh, that's a really great question. I fall back on kind of two core principles. One is trust slash transparency. I mean, bottled up into that, I've, I always have been turned off as a buyer by anyone that I felt was kind of quote unquote used car salesman or just giving me a pitch. I've always been personally attracted to salespeople who asked a lot of really great questions to begin with and really tried to understand what I was trying to accomplish 
and then tailored their solution to fit my needs. Or we're honest about the fact that like, hey, maybe this isn't a great, you know, fit. So that that transparency and trust kind of right up front. And that's actually to go back to a previous question. One of the things I loved about Big Leap, their core value is earn trust every day. So the way that we approach sales here is we ask a lot of questions. We really try to understand what our customers are trying to accomplish. And then we propose something that we think can help them accomplish a goal. We're not just pitching our wares. And, and you know, anytime we do that, we try to correct it and catch ourselves. And like, we're not out there just as pitch men. We're out there trying to help our customers be successful. And that ties into the second thing is anytime you can create a product or service where your focus is 100% on making the customer more successful, improving their lives, improving their business, improving their outcomes, everything else seems to fall into place. And I'm a very product-driven you know, CEO, but I think that that's a sales-based philosophy because if you do that, I've found it's easy to sell, it's easy to market, or easier at least, because you're not trying to convince someone to buy something from you. You're really just trying to serve them and that give first, serve first, create value for your customer philosophy is my, I guess, my formula for success in sales and in, you know, maybe in business in general. You know, it's funny how we've all heard that a million times and we all know that, but we can all tell the difference when somebody's living it or yeah. not. You know, recently been trying to have more of my friends on the show who I think embody that. Do you know Bill Brady? At, was it EKR? Yeah. And now he started Shroomy Wire Ambassador. Yeah. Yep. I just had him on. Bill's you know, awesome. We've you know, been camping together. <laughs> do you know Spencer Taggart? He, yeah, I got to say, Bill has the most phenomenal calves of anybody <laughs> I've ever seen. Did you guys talk about that? No. Oh, because it's hard to see, you know, on a podcast, you can't see it, but he has the most muscular, most insane calves. And it looks like he could jump like a 50 foot vertical jump or something. It's so crazy. That's so funny. Do you know Spencer Taggart? Yeah, I do. Same thing. Also like, phenomenal. Great guy. Yeah. But like, like he genuinely does serve Yeah. instead of saying you should. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I, you know, with and it both feels of those different. guys, and I mean, I think I know them both well enough to say this confidently. They, that's who they are as people. And so it's not just a business philosophy, even though I think it's a successful and good business philosophy, it's just who they are as people. And then in leadership positions, they can kind of influence everybody else to, you know, if they don't, if that's not natural to them to at least buy into that philosophy. But typically if, if the CEO or founder or a leader has that, they end up, you know, creating teams of people that also kind of embody that because the contrast is too great. There's too much conflict between that and other philosophies for there to be a really cohesive team. And so you kind of start adding people to your team who also sort of live that way or at least believe that way. Yeah. Um, it's funny how we don't have work lives and home lives. It's all just one life, right? <laughs> yeah. Listen, I think it's a great place to end part one. Everybody tune back in. I got a bunch more questions for Dave. Okay. Bye, Thanks. Everyone.